0: It was like a real like January 1st resolution moment. I was like, you know what? I am not going to spend one more dollar until I can walk away from this job. And so basically I was like, I am about to get so unbelievably scrappy. And so I'd have all these, these guys that were always like bringing all of this food into the office. And me, a person who was quietly trying to save up a bunch of money so that she could quit this job forever, you know, I'd look over at a guy and be like, you going to eat the rest of that chicken salad sandwich? Because if not, pass it over to your girl. I'm trying to save a little bit of money over here.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Invested Success. I'm so excited to introduce today's guest, Amanda Holden, who is an award-winning money speaker, writer, and educator. Through her business, Invested Development, Amanda educates women about investing because she believes that the world needs more women in financial power. Over the last five years, Amanda has taught thousands of women to invest, and she uses a unique but effective stand-up comedy and relatability to inspire real-world results in her clients. Amanda also writes a money blog called The Dumpster Dog Blog, recently featured in Forbes for her work, and has won multiple Plutus awards. Before we get started, please remember to smash that like button if you're watching on YouTube, or hit subscribe wherever you happen to be listening. Thank you so much for tuning in, and enjoy today's episode with Amanda Holden. So where did it all begin for you? Oh
0: my gosh. Okay. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to have to think for a second about what it is that I wanted to, I think I wanted to be a stunt double when I was growing up. I was like, I want to motorcycle off a cliff. I'm pretty sure that that's what I wrote on any assignment where I had to say what I wanted to be when I grew up for at least like four or five years, but I've gone through phases of a lot of phases. I wanted to be a doctor. I, I wanted to be an astronaut, I all the usual stuff. But where I ended up is I ended up working in investment management. So after graduating from college, I ended up working for a private money manager in San Francisco. And so I was there for about six years. And my primary role at this time was I was working as an investment counselor. And so my job was to work directly with high net worth clients, answering questions about the market, getting to know their personal financial situations, keeping them apprised of portfolio strategy. Basically, what I like to say is I was doing a lot of handholding with old rich white guys all day. And so it was a really good job in that I learned a ton and I'm doing what I'm doing now because I have this background, but I also kind of hated it. <laughs> And so I ended up saving up all my money, quitting, leaving. I thought I was going to leave the world of of money altogether. I just kept coming back around to this idea, which was, you know, all of this information that I learned is so valuable. I've been helping all of my girlfriends with this information. You know, maybe my work here isn't done. And so I decided to come back and start an education business for young women, teaching young women how to invest, Or, or not just young women, but really anybody who has felt left out of these conversations, because so often these conversations about building wealth are reserved for the people that are already wealthy. And I was like, that doesn't make a lot of sense
1: to me. And so here we are. So smart. The name of your blog, we've got to talk about it. The Dumpster Dog Blog? It's the Dumpster Dog Blog, yes. (laughs) Amazing. Where did that
0: come from? Okay. So, well, first of all, the name of my business is Invested Development and the name of the blog that I originally started, it, it's its the Dumpster Dog blog, and it is named for a nickname that I acquired at this period when I decided that I wanted to quit my job in investment management. And so at this time, it was like a real like January 1st resolution moment. I was like, you know what? I am not going to spend one more dollar until I can walk away from this job, until I can quit this place. And so basically I was like, I am about to get, so unbelievably scrappy that I'm going to be a, a version of myself that is unrecognizable to all of my friends who have been witnessing me in my early and mid 20s basically lighting all of my money on fire in San Francisco. And so it's like a super scrappy period where, you know, I was working with. At this point, all of these men, very often I would be the only woman on my team. And so I'd have all these, these guys that were always like bringing all of this food into the office. And me, a person who was quietly trying to save up a bunch of money so that she could quit this job forever, you know, I'd look over at a guy and be like, you're going to eat the rest of that chicken salad sandwich? Because if not, pass it over to your girl. I'm trying to save a little bit of money over here. And so it was during this period where I was trying to save all this money that my coworkers actually nicknamed me Dumpster Doggy. It was, I mean, I think that they were doing so lovingly and I ultimately clued them into what I was doing, but not everybody knew. (laughs) Like when I, even when I quit my job, I gave my two week notice to my boss and he looks at me, he kind of cocks his head to the side and he's like, is this why? I saw you pull a bagel from the trash. I was like, that's right, boss. That's why I don't want to ever come here again. I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. And so, anyways, I decided when I came back, I went and left and traveled for a little bit trying to figure out what to do next. And ultimately, I came came back to the space. I decided to start a blog just on what, you know, what I had done in order to quit, start teaching about investing, start teaching about other money topics. And so I named it the dumpster dog blog on socials. I am also dumpster doggy. It's one of those things where it's like, oh man, like if I had to do it over, would I name it the same thing again? I don't know, but that's what it is for now. And that's what it remains on social media. So come find me.
1: Amazing. I mean, it's so m- memorable and fabulous. I, and Invested Development, let's just talk about that. I love that creative angle and I'm a huge fan of the show, Arrested Development. So how'd you come up with that name specifically or did it just come to you?
0: Yeah, I mean, just trying to think of something that's, that the people are gonna remember and it unifies two of the core pieces of what I'm trying to do, which is teach about investing. And then the development angle is to reach people that, maybe haven't developed this skill yet.
1: I dig that. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that. I I agree with you. The people who need to talk about money aren't always the ones talking about money. So I'm glad you're delivering that message. What was it about your day job that was so horrible? And why did you want to become an entrepreneur?
0: Where do I even begin? There were a lot of things about my corporate work that felt like a mismatch. I would say primarily just the job itself, which was you know, working with rich men, like helping rich men get richer is like not, I would not say that that is something that aligns with my general ethos and what I wanna be doing with my time and with my life. So there was that. Also, in my opinion, it was a very toxic workplace. Um, it was very rigid. Employees had no opportunity for flexibility. You know, we're there nine or ten hours a day, minimum, at a minimum, and the timing is not flexible. So that means we're there when the market opens, which on the West Coast is six thirty in the morning. There's absolutely no flexibility. And you know, one of the things that happens in a workplace where there is no flexibility. Is that there's one very specific type of person that can get ahead, and that is somebody that has no caretaking responsibilities whatsoever. And so, everybody who gets ahead at this firm, they are men who have wives, many of whom stay at home and take care of their children. And so, all of the people in charge, it's just like Don Draper after Don Draper after Don Draper type of guy. They always were willing to to pay enough to be competitive. Their whole ethos was like, if you don't like it, well, like, let me show you to the door. I think that we're, under, or at least some companies are understanding now that if you want women and specifically mothers to be able to get ahead in the workplace, then you're going to have to allow for some flexibility because guess what? When your kid needs to get picked up from a dentist, your kid needs to get picked up from a dentist. And so I am and was a childless person. That being said, I simply cannot work for a place that cannot see that. And so... There was that, there was sexual harassment of course, because I worked in a department of all men. And so that was all around me constantly. And so there there were a lot of reasons. Also, I just kind of didn't want to be talking about money all day. I was like, this is so not me. I don't see myself in this space. I don't see myself in this role. I definitely see myself more as somebody that is maybe like an artsier person. Or would end up in some sort of like humanitarian work or something. And so spiritually, it was also not the right type of work for me. And now I do the same thing. I do talk about money now, but it's a little bit different because it's on my own terms and it's for who I want it to be for.
1: Amazing. I really like that. So what would you say is your unique perspective on some of these topics, including like how someone should get started? Do you have like advice that you give your primary client?
0: Sure. Well, first and foremost, my perspective is that however hard or complicated you think investing is, it's not. It's really not. And that's not to say that there's not a learning curve. You do have to put in the work to understand the terminology, which is something that I work really hard to do to break down in a way that does not suck. My whole thing is to try to make it fun and funny. And so we can do the education, but what I don't want people to find themselves, I don't want people to find themselves in a situation where they're not even getting started because they believe that investing is something that it's not, right? Good investing is actually breathtakingly boring and very simple once you get it set up And once you get the hang of it. But if you were to look on Twitter or Reddit or even dad's cable news programming, what you would believe is that investing is this really complicated thing that you have to be tethered to for the rest of your life in order to be successful, right? Like you're going to need 16 trading screens, like, up at 6 a.m., shotgunning Red Bulls all day, placing day trades, investing in altcoins. Like these things, sure, maybe they're one version of investing, but actually, historically, they're a very unsuccessful version of, of investing. One of the best things that you can understand as a new investor, and this is hopefully like the greatest money news you'll hear all year, is that good investing is actually very easy, simple, and boring. And this is kind of unusual in the world of money management, because like for for me at least, like budgeting is very complicated. I would say the budgeting is hard and it's kind of hard to stick to. And we think that it should be easy, but it's really not. Whereas to me, investing is the reverse where we think it's going to be really difficult, but it's actually very easy.
1: I'm all about that completely. I found the same thing. I was shocked. When i realized how easy investing was that i wasn't doing it for like the decade beforehand it was gut-wrenching actually is your philosophy around index funds is it kind of like that set it forget it fire movement or do you have other kind of divergent advice
0: no i would say that index funds are my preference when you do take like one of my courses i do walk you through all of the options and give the pros and cons of each of the available options you will be able to sense my preference for index funds or for some sort of strategy that is based off of using index funds. For example, using a robo-advisor that buys index funds for you, that's what a robo-advisor does. For anybody that's listening that might not know what an index fund is. So first of all, an index is simply a measure Of performance of some market. And so, for example, the most common market that we talk about is the U.S. stock market. Our most favorite measure or index of performance for the U.S. stock market is the S&P 500. And so, originally, the S&P 500 just started out, it's just a measure. It's just a thermometer. It's just a measuring stick. But then what we started doing is building these big investment funds that mimic The index. So now you can buy a fund that matches the S&P 500. What that ultimately gets you is an investment in the 500 companies. We call them leading companies in the United States and their stocks. And you invest in all of those companies in proportion to how big they are in the economy, because that's how the S&P 500 index measures them. So what are you getting when you invest in an S&P 500 index fund? you are getting basically an investment in the U.S. economy. Basically, you are betting that overall, companies are going to continue to grow and create wealth, and you want your little piece of that. Now, that's not the only index fund you can buy. There are indices that measure all sorts of markets, right? You could find an index that measures technology stocks, and therefore a fund, an index fund that invests In those technology stocks, you could find an index that measures how corporate bonds are performing and therefore you can invest in index fund in an index fund that mimics that index right and so you're invested in corporate bonds. The reason that it's so popular is because historically index funds have outperformed what we call active management by a long shot every single year in the financial times you'll see some sort of headline that's like even professional active money managers so guys that are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this professionally guys that have and and gals of course that have every single forecasting tool at their disposal are not able to outperform the index consistently over time And there's a lot of reasons for this. One very obvious reason is it costs money to trade. And so you not only have to do better than the index average, but you have to overcome all of your own costs of trading. You know, another, maybe a little bit more esoteric reason is because what we see in the stock market is everybody is basically voting on what they think the price of any single stock should be, Right. Maybe. And we do this through our buying and selling. That's a vote. And so Elise, maybe you're buying Amazon because you think it's going to take over the world. Maybe I'm selling Amazon because I think Jeff Bezos is a big tool. It doesn't really matter. But what we get is that the market is kind of like this voting mechanism that actually ends up being pretty accurate. And so when you're trying to beat the market, that's what active management is, is trying to beat the market. What you are essentially saying is, I know more than every single investor across the globe. I know more than global investing demand. And so it's a really difficult thing to do, to beat everybody, to beat the whole market. And so again, what we've seen historically is that if you actually do the easier, simpler thing and just invest in index funds, whatever market you want to invest in, invest in that market using index funds, and then just focus on shoveling money in and then letting it ride, letting it rip over time has historically been the best performing method. You'll perform better than 95% of investors if you just keep it super simple. And so who am I to argue with that? Now, of course, I'm always willing to talk about what could be the potential downfalls of index funds, but I think that for most people at this point, there does not seem to be a better option out there.
1: Completely. I actually could nerd out about the the downfall of index funds as well, but my behavior is your exact advice and it's been a total revelation. But do you have any thoughts on potential downfalls or exploring how you can hedge your bets, like investing in a different economy and that kind of thing?
0: Sure. Well, I am personally all for global diversification. And so there are definitely two camps of stock investors. There are people that say US is best And even legendary investors like Warren Buffett and even Jack Bogle who who created Vanguard and the Index Fund, they're very US's best people. And I think that for a lot of people who are trying to keep it as simple as possible, shoveling a bunch of money into a US, a total US stock market or an S&P 500 Index stock market fund is a fine strategy. I personally prefer to also invest internationally. Even though historically the performance has not been quite as good as with what we call domestic or U.S. stocks, but I don't know, I am I just tend to be a person that is very suspicious of the American experiment, and so because of it, I prefer to diversify out. And so your typical diversification within an investment portfolio will include both We call them foreign or international stocks, your US stocks, and then also potentially some some bonds if if you wanted to integrate bonds into your portfolio. But you know, your original question about how do you hedge your bets? That's like a little bit of a different question than the question of how do you handle a dip? Yes, you want to build a diversified portfolio. You don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket you want to have different types of investments that perform during different types of market scenarios. That's the whole point of having bonds is if the market crashes, then not your your entire portfolio is not going to crash with it. If you have this kind of psychological cushion piece of, of bonds, the question of how should you act during a stock market crash? Well, first of all, you just have to, you have to train your brain as a new investor to think much differently. If we have a crash, Or if we have, let's even say, you know, you mentioned Japan in the 80s. Let's even say that we have what we call like a lost decade, like a decade that is really bad. It feels like you're treading water, right? You're not going anywhere. Both of these scenarios, a crash and a lost decade, these are actually incredibly good things if you are a new investor. We have to rethink what even the words good and bad when we're talking about the market, it's good and bad depending on your vantage point. If you are somebody that is trying to live off of your portfolio's investments, then a crash is very, very bad. If you are somebody that is trying to buy new shares for as cheap as possible, then a crash and specifically a prolonged crash is very, very good. And so from and I don't think we need to be like, wishing for a crash. Like we're not butt heads, You know what I mean? We don't, we don't want to like ruin the, the retirement plans of our parents and, and grandparents by any means, but you do have to train your brain to think differently. If you are buying investments, do you want to buy these investments for more expensive or less expensive, ideally for less expensive, but for whatever reason, the market, because it is this like, kind of like this wild place where it really does play tricks on your mind. But you have to remember that market crashes are good for new investors. If you have, I would say almost all of my investors are investors who have much more investing ahead of them than behind them. And yes, the market crash is going to impact whatever money you do already have investing. But if you have more investing to do ahead of you than behind you, then who cares? It is still an opportunity to buy in and the last thing that you want to do is get rattled because what you're seeing is your current investments take a dip in value. What you need to do is you need to see the opportunity that exists that exists ahead of you. But at least this is very difficult to do because what happens in these environments, like what are you hearing on the news? What are you reading on Twitter? You're reading that the economy is going to collapse. The stocks are going to zero. You're going to hear that every single time. Stock are going to zero. During every crash is the time that they think that stocks are going to completely lose value, which by the way has never happened. Because again, what is driving stock prices in the short term is the buying and selling. And so after we, so first of all, what's causing a crash? The selling, right? It's literally us, but you know, more importantly, big institutions that invest that are selling out of their stocks, that selling drops demand. And that is actually what causes the price to go down. And so like what I always tell people is like, just remember like the call is coming from inside the house. We are the ones that are doing it. And at some point, once the dust settles and people realize, okay, like the worst of the crash is over. I still have my job. I didn't lose my income. Some people certainly did, but not everybody. I feel safe, so what am I going to do? I'm going to put my money back in the market. And that buying in, that slow buying in is actually then, again, the same mechanism, what pushes prices higher? Because if stocks really did go to zero, if you could buy a share of Apple for $0, wouldn't you jump on it? Absolutely, because we know that overall, Apple isn't going anywhere as a company. And so really the price that is being displayed right now is just reflective of a lot of things. It's reflective of the value of the company, of course, but also just how we're feeling, our moods as investors, Right. Did we as a global investing collective wake up on the wrong side of the bed? We can kind of get spooked in the short term for no reason, or we can get way too high on our own supply for no reason. And this is quite literally what causes what we call both bubbles, mania, and then when the bubble bursts, that's a crash.
1: There's a a video by Ray Dalio that I love that kind of explains that and how it's just like an integral part of a capitalistic economy, including debt being a really important part of it. And if you zoom out from a macro level, it's very patterned like waves. But when you're in the middle of it, especially with the media, the way it is, it can feel really stressful and anxiety inducing. But I love the way you describe it, getting high on our own supply. You really make this stuff interesting and fun um, in a way I think nobody else can or does.
0: I try. I mean, really, I feel like I'm just a clown who's desperate for laughs, who happens to know a little bit about investing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I'm so curious, like, okay, so you did this as a, as a, your day job, that feels so mysterious to me. What do people do in those firms? Like, did you just buy people index funds all day or did you try to beat the market?
0: So I was not the person that chose the investments. I was just the face person. And so as an investment counselor, I'm keeping my clients apprised of portfolio strategy, I'm not making investment decisions. And so my job is just to be able to talk good about it and keep people happy and at any point where it's possible change the conversation to football. And so I also had to know way more than I wanted to know about football, but anything to not talk about the poor performance of their portfolios. And so no, the I mean, any type of wealth manager out there, the one that I worked for specifically was investing in individual stocks and we were attempting to beat the market. The people making the decisions for all of our clients are a research team of probably a hundred or more people and an investment policy committee who are then at the top of that research pyramid, ultimately the ones making the decisions about what are the best companies to own specifically because we were primarily invested in the stock market, although we had bonds integrated into our portfolios as well and so because we advertised ourselves as a firm that is attempting to beat the market in many of the years that we did not beat the market because even somebody that does consistently beat the market over time which is extremely rare but what never happens is There's not going to ever be a manager who beats every year, even if they are able to do so consistently over the long run, because anything wacky can happen in a year. I hate to break it to all of us, but like the stock market does not give a shit about the Gregorian calendar, right? The stock market does not care about your performance at the close uh, of the year on December 31st. And again, anything can happen in the short term. And in the short term, it's not really based on fundamentals. It's based on investor motion, which is a very difficult thing to predict. And so a lot of the work that I would do is specifically explain, this is why we're invested in X, Y, and Z, right? This is why we're doing what we're doing. And also trying to ingrain good investing habits into our investors, like setting proper expectations. For example, we can't beat the market every year. And then second of all, we don't control the market when it goes down. And if you're going to play the game, you got to play the whole game. And that includes writing out the dips. Okay. So I started working in investment management in 2008. I was only there for about six months before the entire bottom fell out of the market. Um, I was just working as an associate at the time, but I moved into the role where I was working directly with clients in early 2010. And so we were not out of the weeds by 2010. And in fact, I would say people probably didn't feel better from that crash until about 2015, 16 or 17. Even though the market had already completely recovered and moved up, it was such a terrible recession and such a painful market crash, we call it a bear market, that people were feeling the effects for a very long time. If you were invested in the stock market in 2008, 2009, your portfolio, for example, the S&P 500 lost over 50% of its value. And so if you had, you know, a, a client, if a client had $10 million invested, you know, in the blink of an eye, they now have $5 million invested. Can you imagine? I mean, like, I don't know that we have like any additional sympathy for anybody that has $10 million saved and invested. But, you know, a lot of these people, you know, worked hard hard for their money and that's their nest egg and their on the precipice of retiring and it's cut in half, all the money that they worked their entire career for are cut in half. And at that point, what you have to do is you have to hang on and wait for things to recover and maybe just be flexible with your retirement date. But again, it the, the market is really going to trick you into believing that this is a permanent state when it's not. Like you said, when you zoom out, when you watch from the moon, you see pattern waves, but when you're in it, you feel like it's permanent. And so again, this is all my answer to your question of like, what were you doing? Well, what I was doing was basically trying to get grown men to stop crying about their money
1: and just chill out for a minute. Well, yeah. I mean, are you passionate about index funds? Because being in that environment, did you notice that it was actually potentially more profitable to be investing it yourself with these automated funds? Or were people actually able to beat the market here and there? Because I've seen that happen as well.
0: I think beating the market is possible. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you only bought Apple stock 30 years ago, then you beat the market. And so it's, of course, what I'm not saying is that it is impossible to beat the market. There are going to be people that beat the market, but you are then taking on additional risk in order to do so. Because in order to invest in a way that's different than the index average, it means that you are narrowing down on categories that you think are going to outperform. You could be right or you could be wrong. And so for most people, especially people that aren't familiar with investing in the stock market, and they aren't familiar with just the inherent risk of being invested in a volatile asset class where there are not necessarily any promises, that's plenty of risk in and of itself. And so then to add an additional layer of risk by trying to outperform the market is something that I just don't think is really necessary for a lot of people. I'm not saying that you can't do it, I would say that if you are going to go that route, then you definitely want to make sure you understand how to use a benchmark to manage risk and measure performance. And if, if that sentence just went in one ear and out the other, then you're probably not ready for active management.
1: That's smart. Do you think we're in an inflated market right now?
0: Yeah, it feels really, really, really inflated, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the stock market is just not at the same party as the economy, which it's been really wild to witness over the last couple of years. That being said, we have been saying this for the last, probably since 2015, we've been saying, okay, this bull market, which is a good market cycle. I hate to use the word good, but like this positive trajectory that we're seeing in in the market since basically March of 2009 is when the market turned around. And so this is a really long, good or bull market cycle. We've kind of been waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? It feels like at any point, this whole house of cards could come tumbling down. And so there's no doubt that if you're watching and if you're apprehensive, And you're like, okay, but that lady told me that I should be investing when the market is bad, not overinflated, that it feels like maybe what you should do is keep some money on the sidelines. I get it. That being said, again, this has been said in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20 And almost every single one of those years was a wildly positive year. If you kept your money on the sidelines because you thought the stock market was going to crash, you only missed upside. And guess what? You cannot even hope to perform what the average stock market performance is over time. If you're missing years that are up. And the reality is the stock market is up more than it is down. So it's up about 70% of the time. It's down about 30% of the time. Statistically speaking, or at least with all of the empirical or numerical studies that we are seeing about, like, because basically your question is, should I invest now or should I wait? The answer is most of the time, it makes sense to get the money invested now because the market is up more than it is down. And so it is more likely that you are going to miss upside than miss out on downside. And so that being said, you also have to take you know, what we know from empirical studies of the market. And then you have to puzzle piece that together with whatever you feel good about emotionally, because the last thing you want to do is put all your money in. And then maybe the market does crash and then have you stop believing in your ability to do it. Yes. Empirically, it makes sense to put the money in as soon as you can, in order to apply your money to the market for as long as possible to catch as much upside as possible but you have to pair that with your own personal comfort level knowing that this is a long-term game and you do not want to let the market mess with your resolve
1: that's really smart i'd love to hear what you think about dollar cost averaging and as well as like how much of a cash cushion on the side is a good idea so like let's say the stock market does crash you obviously don't want to then sell your stocks at that time, right? You want to leave them in and let them ride. So what would be like a good allocation of cash versus index funds?
0: Yeah. So dollar cost averaging is, is simply the act of putting in money to the market or buying investments in the market on a regular basis. For most people that will be monthly or twice monthly, depending on when they get their paychecks. It's great. I mean, right. You can't invest money that you don't have yet. And so for most people, the name of the game is going to be dollar cost averaging by investing a little bit of each of their paychecks. And so if that's what you're doing, that's amazing. The only time where dollar cost averaging gets called into question is to jump back to our previous question of the lump sum, should I put all of the money in or should I like trail it out month by month for the next two years? And so that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the studies that have looked at this. And what we find is that 70% of the time doing the lump sum right now, all at once is better than trailing that money out over a longer period because the market is up more than it is down. And so most of the time it's going to make sense to get all your money in. But again, like I said, you can't invest money that you don't have yet. And so for most of us, as we're growing as we're building our careers as we're increasing our salaries what we want to do is be dollar cost averaging getting whatever we can into the market in any one given pay period and you know every six months every year try to adjust and see if you can add a little bit more given your you know your personal financial situation i also do feel that we, we i mean it's always good to have education earlier rather than later but Saving is also good. I am also not one of these people that thinks that you need to be investing every last dollar that you have. I mean, especially as as women, especially as people that tend to bear the burden of caretaking, being a woman is also just expensive. Let's be honest and so your other question was about how much cash to have and so i i I think of it really simply like you keep as much cash as you feel comfortable with needing in the event of an emergency and then also whatever cash that you want to be using for any what i would call short term money goals and so start with your emergency fund that's the first cash goal and everybody's emergency fund is going to be different Dave Ramsey's advice of $1,000 is not going to be enough for anybody, so you're going to need more than $1,000, but how much you need depends on what is the cost of living in your in your particular area, how much do you spend on a month-by-month basis, and ultimately, if you were to get laid off from your job, how long do you think it would take you to realistically get a new job, especially if the economy was bad? So back in the day, the old number was it takes about six months to get a new job. If you are laid off from your current job in a bad economy, that can be a starting place having six months of like what I would consider to be like stripped down expenses, right? Like you're not living lavishly during these times. What would it cost to pay your bills, to get yourself fed, to pay your insurance to take care of yourself, to get through this rough period. And how long do you think that you need this money for? Again, maybe you're three months, maybe you're, you have a family and you're like a year would make me feel more comfortable. And so that's where I would start. And by the way, this is a hard goal to accomplish we talk about it very flippantly because it's the first goal and we're all excited to move beyond this goal and to get to investing but it's also totally okay to start with working on your emergency fund and to start with paying off any high interest debt like credit cards because guess what there is not going to be a reasonable way that you can invest and invest your way out of what you are essentially bleeding out in credit card interest and so if you want to go ham On your credit cards first and foremost and then work on that emergency fund before you get to investing that's a great goal that's a totally fine goal don't feel bullied into doing something that you're not ready for
1: that's a great question actually and i'm sure one that people are wondering a lot does it make more sense to pay off debt or to invest or to do simultaneously both it's
0: it all depends on the person right and so like if you are somebody that is anti-debt then use that momentum, use that energy to get rid of the debt. And as long as you're working on something, you're doing well, right? The way that I look at it, because I think it's like a very like personal finances, personal type of a thing is that, okay, so first we start by comparing interest rates, right? What is the interest rate that you are paying on your debt versus what is the interest rate that you could hope to earn on an investment? And so let's say that you could reasonably expect to earn 7% annually moving forward by investing in the stock market. And so that's maybe how much you could expect, although nothing is a guarantee. Nothing is a guarantee, right? So then compare that to debt. The average credit card right now has a rate of interest of about 16, 17, 18% per year. There is really no way that you could invest to outpay again or out what you are paying out in this credit card interest, right? Like I always like to tell people there, there's only one way to in- to earn 18% guaranteed returns on your investment, that is to be Visa. Visa is earning this rate of return because they're the ones that are charging this exorbitant rate of interest. And so if you carry a credit card balance, the math is pretty clear. Work on getting rid of your credit cards first and foremost. Now, where it starts to get a little bit more interesting is when we're comparing an interest rate, like let's say you have a student loan that you're paying a 7% rate of interest on your student loan, and you could expect to potentially earn 7% investing, what should you do? And this is where we can start to tap into what feels best for you. If you are somebody that's like, I wanna get rid of it, then we know what you should do. You should work on getting rid of the debt, right? If you are somebody that's like, you know what? I've got the debt payment handled. It just feels like a bill, just like every other bill. I don't want my payment to Fannie Mae to stop me from building my own wealth. And so I want to get started investing now while I'm also paying off debt. If that's how you feel and you feel inspired to do both simultaneously, that is also great.
1: That's genius. I would be amiss if I didn't dive into something I'm also really passionate about, which is the wealth gender gap. What are some of the discrepancies that you see? How what are you doing to kind of like close that divide?
0: Yeah, well, first and foremost is creating a space where you are not going to be condescended to no matter which question you ask. Right? I was even talking with a friend last night and she was like, I'm like past age where I can just ask stupid questions. I'm like, okay, first of all, everybody has the same questions like nobody slides out the womb knowing what modern portfolio theory is that's just like not the way that it works and so there are no stupid questions first of all and don't worry everybody's got these same questions and so really taking the standpoint of there are no stupid questions is important to my personal model and then also Like what you'll never see me do is ever condescend to anybody about their spending habits. I don't know you. I don't know what makes you happy. What I will literally never do is tell you to stop getting a manicure so that you can invest. Yes, we do need to find the money somewhere. And so what we should do is we should take a deep inventory and figure out what we don't love, what is not needed in our lives. And I think that we also, as women need to, truly confront the forces of materialism and consumerism that we're faced with every day. You know, the forces that tell us that we're not pretty enough, skinny enough and try to understand, you know, is this making me make decisions that will ultimately affect my long-term personal health. But again, what I'm never going to do is say, don't do this, don't do that. Because you also hear so many stories about women who go to a financial advisor and the financial advisor maybe only speaks to the husband or condescends to her because she's got an expensive purse or or whatever it may be. And so we got to leave all of that behind because I guess, guess who spends a lot of money? Men. (laughs) Men spend a lot of money, but when women do it, we get condescended to. And so those are a couple of the ways that I try to combat it in my education. I'm also somebody that will be the first to say that financial literacy is not going to fix our country's problem with sexism and racism. Ultimately, helping women with resources get richer is be honest, is is, is kind of the work that I do, and I do my best to make it accessible. But truly, feminism has to be a bottom-up job, not a top-down job. Getting more women in this C-suites is admirable, but it's actually not going to be what helps most women. And so in my work, in addition to trying to educate about investing, which is the core of my business, I find it very important to have very honest conversations about this work I do and whether or not it is feminist. And I'll be the first to criticize myself and my business and saying that I don't know that it is. And that's also okay. It's okay to be honest about what type of impact your work is having. And I get the nicest, nicest notes from my students and my students are so, so lovely, but- you know, until we can raise the minimum wage, until we have paid maternity leave, paternity leave as well, parental leave for all parents, you know, until we have reasonably affordable healthcare, until, until we have all of these childcare, nobody in this country can get reasonable. It's a, it's a mortgage to take it it's like taking out another mortgage to get childcare. And so until we can fix these things we're really not going to ever see any sort of equality, any sort of financial equality across all genders and races.
1: I'd love to talk about how women are victims of things like MLM schemes and this kind of like pop feminism message out there and how that might be actually more problematic than it is a solution. What are your thoughts on that? Oh man, when I wrote that blog post
0: that you're referring to about MLMs, and i would say that even now i probably have a little bit softer of a stance on mlms not in the sense that i think that anybody should do them your your chances of financial success are less than 1% it can actually it, your chances of financial ruin are much higher than your chances of financial success and they are extremely predatory but again it's kind of the, the same thing where i'm 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 not going to Condescend to you if you are just somebody that is ultimately trying to make it work under capitalism and you feel like you have no other options because you are not allowed to work outside of the home or there are not good options for working within the home, right? And so if you are somebody that finds yourself in a situation where you're feeling desperate to have your own source of income, right? So you're not just some sort of trophy wife and you ultimately get swindled into one of these essentially pyramid schemes or you know work that is that is predatory in nature like it then then I I really have nothing but sympathy for you and I it, it really makes me sad that we live in a world where being a mom leaves you with such such few good options to be able to participate in the workforce that we see MLMs pro- proliferating the way that we do. It's really fun to make fun of the really dumbass messages you get from your high school friends trying to sell you lip gloss. Like it's really fu- like, trust me when I say that at my core, I'm a person that likes to do that. But ultimately, if, this, if we want to fix this problem, that we need to have better labor solutions for women that are trying to raise families
1: oh that's beautiful i really like that a lot a
0: a lot of what i do focuses on speaking to women specifically or anybody who has felt the the effects of of sexism in the workplace in their financial lives and to do so with some levity and and with with some humor and I, i always try to teach using metaphors current events memes I'll put on a caution, like whatever it takes to get people to listen. I'm pretty willing to do it. And so for me my entry point is is comedy or trying to be funny. Like I'm not a comedian by by any means, but like always trying to because like for me all I want to do is laugh. I want to see people who are putting joy into the world. Don't get me wrong, I doom scroll with the best of them and I feel like I, I have like a very dark side as well. And so for me, like what I'm trying to do is, is output reassurance and enjoy and, and instill a belief in people that they absolutely can do it if they commit to the education. If they trust me, then I would be so happy to be their teacher.
1: Let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey. So first of all, for you, That special magical number, it sounds like, was 30K or so I've read. Why that number for you? And like, what was the mindset set shift that brought you from spender to saver?
0: So the 30K number that you're referencing is how much money I save in cash to quit my job. I'm not going to lie. I did not quit my job thinking that I was going to start as an entrepreneur. I quit my job with 30K in my pocket so I could travel and basically figure it out starting from complete zero, With that money, I traveled for a year in South America, mostly, Latin America generally. I came home with some of that money left over. And at that point, I had already made the decision to basically start again with this idea in my head of taking this information that I had learned at the investment management firm and repackaging it and getting it to the demographics that I care most about. And so initially I thought I was going to write, so be a writer. And I, I did ultimately Write for the last about four years as a freelance writer. I also started by writing a book on investing. And this is perhaps the best entrepreneurial advice that you can ever receive, is that like whatever you think the first thing is going to be, it's not going to be that thing, but you are obligated to do it and ultimately to fail to figure out what is going to be your next thing. And so for me, basically, I wrote a book on investing. Then when it came to shopping for agents, learning about the publishing process, what everything said was like, oh, like, if you want a nonfiction book publishing deal, then you have to be famous. (laughs) And I was like, oh no. Like I had barely been on social media at all, even personally at this point. So I was just kind of like, well, I don't really know how to get 2 million Twitter followers. And so I guess I'll work on that. But in the meantime, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start teaching live. I know that that is something that I'm really good at. And that also seems to really work for people. Sitting in a room where like a teacher like me is like, all right, you can't, you can't escape me for an hour. I'm going to teach you everything I, everything I can in the next hour. Actually, to me, revealed itself to be much more impactful for people than reading about investing. Because I was doing a lot of writing, that's when I started the blog. And I had the blog going, I was writing this book, I was doing the live teaching. And out of all those irons in the fire, so to speak, the live teaching was definitely what people liked the most. They liked it much more than my blog. And so basically I then started hitting that harder and going in that direction, started the business invested development. It was mostly live speaking and teaching, but now a lot of it is converted to video courses, workshops. And then I consider the content creation for social media under that umbrella as well. And so that seems to be what works for people. And it's not that I don't wanna maybe necessarily publish this book on investing, at some point, but I just, I had to listen to people and I had to listen to what people wanted. And ultimately I respected that. And that has given me a business, which is now it's it's working. It took about five years, but I no longer do any other freelance work. I don't do any other side work. I also bartended for two years while I was starting over from nothing. And so as of the January of this year, the beginning of this year, I, I quit all other freelance work to, to, to do my business full time, but yeah, it took four, four or five years.
1: Congratulations. That's huge. There's this like notion, especially with social media that overnight, you're like, I quit to be an entrepreneur. And then you're famous and successful. It's like farming. You're planting the seed. You're hoping that it sprouts. It might not. You have to water it every day with that faith. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I learned a ton, even as an investing veteran. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with our audience today that we didn't cover?
0: Yeah, well, if you want to come and find me, find my work, it mostly goes down on Instagram at dumpster.doggy, although I am trying to be on TikTok at dumpster.doggy as well. I do also kind of have a YouTube project in the works. I think it's going to be like a limited series, 10 different videos on on YouTube. So you can find me there as well. But um, that's the free content. If you're feeling really ready to level up your game, I frequently do both shorter workshops like investing 101 workshops and then i have my full investing course as well it's called invested development and so if you want to commit to 12 hours 15 video lessons office hours with me so you can ask me all of your questions as you're learning the material um, that's definitely like my best and most complete option
1: amanda thank you so much for coming on the show it was a pleasure having you What was your favorite takeaway? Let me know in the comments below or leave a review. Next week's guest is going to be absolutely epic. You're not going to want to miss this episode. Thank you as always so much for tuning in. I hope you have a fantastic and amazing day. Until next week, this is Elise Walsh signing off with Invested Success. Thanks again for tuning in and have an incredible day.